Greetings, everybody. This is your first installment of DPS for this week. It is part two of my tribute to Ed Rooksby. Ed Rooksby is a fallen friend, fallen scholar, colleague, comrade, whatever you want to call him. Um, we're going to miss him a lot. He passed away a couple of weeks ago. You guys can check out my extended eulogy that I released on part one last week. But for this part two, I wanted to air um, our very first interview that we did together about some of the myths of dual power and some of the, you know, how Ed was just a master at picking apart some of the old shibboleths, the campfire stories that have long been held on the left for 75 to 100 plus years. And Ed's work masterfully dissected those shibboleths and revealed the kind of um, rational kernel underbellies, if you will, of those histories, of those traditions. That is the, the democratic road to socialism, the complexities of dual power, the demands of building something that looks like a popular effort to socialism, right? I.e. not the campfire stories, not the cosplay Marxism, not the toy soldier Marxism that's predominated on the American left for far, far too long. He is uh, was in good company at his passing, of course, with the Corbin moment, the Bernie Sanders moment, and it breaks my heart that he will not be around in the coming years to help us sort through some of these complexities given that that moment of struggle has waned for the time being, you know. Struggle waxes and wanes, it comes and goes, waves crest and they crash. And we are in a bit of a holding pattern right now. And it just, it still kills me that I won't be able to have Ed on to make sense of this for us. But we do have his many hours of DPS interviews to lean on and to find some solace in and, and, and much inspiration and wisdom and knowledge, um, so I'm going to be re-airing our very first interview that we did together. I've remastered this. I've cut it up and hopefully made it relevant to the topics at hand. Near the tail end of this, I'm also going to be playing another clip from a previous appearance that we did. So pardon, it might be a little choppy, but I think it flows quite nicely. A lot of insights to be gleaned here. So you guys get out your pen and paper. Um, Rooksby, as, as he always did, gave a masterclass on these topics. So whether you agree or disagree, you're going to learn something. So I hope you guys enjoy this. The second installment of DPS will resume our regularly scheduled programming before we learned of Ed's tragic passing. I have a number of really fantastic episodes, interviews that is, uh, interviews, uh, that are episodes, episodes that feature interviews, <laughs> As we always do here on DPS, we try to master the long-form interview, and we've got some bangers coming up. I've got Micah Utrecht. I've got Adam Hilton talking about the history and the con you know the, the transformation inside the Democratic Party. I have Eric Blanc talking about his dirty break strategy. I'm going to be featuring an interview with a member of the Collective Power Network inside of DSA to talk about their strategy, their orientation with and in, in against the Democratic Party. I've got Matt Carp coming on to talk about the politics of identity in the second Gilded Age is what he's called it. And a really masterful piece that appeared in Jacobin that deserves a lot more discussion than it's getting. So 
I've got some really amazing episodes lined up and I'm, I'm kind of really newly re-energized by these latest interviews that I've done. And I know you guys are going to really enjoy them. So as always, if you enjoy this program, uh, if you think it's important, and I, I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say that, that Ed Rooksby thought this was very important, um, that this effort of sort of getting to the heart of socialist history, strategy, theory, all the rest of it, and the way that I'm able to do on DPS, and the way this has got nothing to do with me, you guys. I'm not, I'm not uh, gassing myself up here. This is all about you, the listeners. And primarily, it's about the patrons. The patrons are the ones who support this endeavor. It's something that, uh, <laughs> speaking of our dearly departed uh, comrade and friend, Michael Brooks, Brooks had me on the show for the first time. He had me on his show, I don't know, three and a half years ago at this point. And he just said, I, I think your show is brilliant. I, I just don't know who the fuck is going to listen to it because it's such a niche thing, right? And so I dared to do what very few podcasters dared to do, which is to do a niche podcast. And it's the patrons that it's you patrons that are the ones that make this possible, and that's not the kind of like, you know, PBS once a year fun drive viewers like you make this possible. I mean, like literally, you guys literally make this like literally literal as uh, <laughs> as Gen Z would say, literally, you guys make this possible. And so I cannot stress enough the importance of continuing that support so that I can keep these in-depth, long form, heavy hitting interviews coming your way. There's a lot to listen to out there, a lot of podcasts, but uh, I appreciate you for supporting this one. It's patreon.com slash deadpundits. Become a subscriber today and keep this political education project going. All right, please enjoy this interview with Ed Rooksby. Rest in peace, my friend. Which brings us into the, the fundamental sort of uh, meat of the show here. We're going to be talking about an essay that you just wrote and published uh, it's in Critique, the Journal of Socialist Theory. It's called Structural Reform and the Problem of Socialist Strategy Today. And we get at this inside, outside, structural reform, uh, contradictions of capitalism and organizations and all of that, what we've just talked about for the last 10 minutes or so. So it's all very apt. Um, I'm going to put this essay up on the show notes. You have been so kind to put it on your website. Hopefully get so much attention that we crash it temporarily. Uh, we'll, we'll see. But, uh, I, you know, I, I, I came across this essay. I, I can't say enough good things about it, uh, not only because I like your work and it, it's very parallel to mine because, you know, I'm, I'm a good narcissist like everyone. But it really does cover a lot of the content that longtime listeners of the show uh, will be very, very familiar with. So we want to get into that in terms of, you know, bit by bit. Piece by piece, we're going to do a close read of this. So tell us a little bit about the impulse behind writing the piece. I mean, clearly it's very topical. You're talking about Syriza and you're looking ahead at a, at a Corbyn government yeah. uh, in the UK. But but take us back to the moment that you first conceived of this piece. Um, what led you in that direction? Well, I kind of, I've been interested in this sort of area, Paul Anstice and Andre Gortz and structural reform. Uh, ever since my, my PhD, which I finished in 2008. Um, but um, I kind of didn't do that much with it after I finished my studies. And it was only with, I mean, clearly something, something changed um, after the financial crisis, um, particularly, you know, around uh, when, when Syriza was starting to make gains, 2012-ish. And then you get this kind of amazing wave of... Um, 
radical left formations that spring up in the kind of space vacated by the mainstream social democratic formations like, um, you know, uh, PASOK, but you've also got the, um, uh, what's going on in, in Spain, the, the kind of collapse of, uh, of social democracy into austerian parties, just like any conservative party. Uh, and you get the rise of groups like, um, like Podemos uh, uh, and uh, the left bloc in Portugal. Uh, and then also um, Bernie Sanders, you know, that these kind of movements, they take different forms, don't they? But they all kind of have, it seemed to me they had the, the same kind of core in common, which was this idea of uh, a combination of the kind of classic electoral or parliamentary campaigns of, to form a government, but supported by sort of genuinely mass forms of mobilization, uh, sort of grassroots organizations. So they, 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 they weren't the, the, the kind of classic social democratic formations they were something new and it seemed like the stuff that i've been interested in a few years ago had this renewed currency it was um what was happening and so i wanted to think about what these sort of resources from the past particularly from the 70s and 60s to some extent um, can tell us about what's happening now in some senses Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's the whole vivify something in your piece. You bring up at one point uh, early on in the intro that uh, this is at once a a new phenomenon. Uh, This would have these uh, left coalition parties or or fractions or whatever you want to call it sort of emerging on the one hand. That's very new because it's a very new kind of political economic context after the Great Recession Mm. and the, uh, you know, fiscal crisis of the state, uh, the most recent one in the Euro crisis and all the rest of it, but it's also old. And so far as the, the stakes and the terms of the debate are, are somewhat, are somewhat old. So it sounds to me like, uh, you know, you, you came to this topic through uh, a series of disappointments, say with P- uh, Pasok and, and, and Greece, which, which was a, a socialist party at one point, uh, Papandreou, the one time, uh, prime minister was, I believe the head of the socialist international at one point. Yeah. And this is the guy who ushered in, uh, you know, austerity in Greece. And so, um, that experienced, uh, on the one hand could be very, um, you know, dispiriting and, 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 uh, it could lead to a certain form of paralysis, but it sounds like you turned that disappointment to, into a generative, uh, process. Well, I, I, I was just inspired by and excited by the rise of these new left formations. And I mean, like you say, they're trying to do something new and they often were just new. They, they come out of nowhere, you know, or at least they've been small organizations that suddenly had this massive spurt in popularity. Or in the case of Corbyn, you get this kind of weird development within the official party of social democracy where it gets all the odds and against what everyone had been saying forever, which is that you, the left could never reclaim the Labour Party. That's what I've been saying for years and years. And right. suddenly the left kind of essentially takes control of this established organisation with amazing resources, with roots in trade unions, with a kind of uh, a, a sort of national brand recognition, with established, you know, structures and great finances. And there was clearly something really exciting and new happening here. But also, like you say, some quite old problems were raising their head again. And we were confronting, I guess we were confronting problems that 
in some ways we haven't ever had to confront, or not for a long time, you know, because the left have never got anywhere near power. So, <laughs> as I say kind of, often on the show, you know, these are good problems to have. These yeah, are the exactly. problems that every yeah. every socialist uh, is just dying to have in his or her lifetime. Yeah, uh, you know, you write in this piece uh, as I as I alluded to earlier. There's this shift that Leo Panitch and Sam Gendon have called uh, a move from protest to politics. And so you you elaborate there. Uh, it's a shift away from the anti-globalization and anti-war demonstrations from the early uh, the early aughts, you might say, uh, into uh, uh, this idea that uh, radical left organizing can cohere with a certain kind of electoral campaign and we can take control of the state and change it more directly. And as you raise uh, this this change of emphasis brought novelty in some respects. Mm -hmm. And others, of course, it represented a return to one of the oldest controversies in socialist thought. And we're going back to the folks that you bring up, Bernstein, Luxembourg, Lenin, Kautsky. All the classics are back in a big way. And uh, so you frame this between the distinction uh, that a lot of folks uh, sort of harken back to, which is that of reform versus revolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How, how does that usually take shape in, in these debates? The, you know, those classic debates, we're still operating in their orbit, I guess. You know, we, we've not found a way to escape them. Uh, that, that kind of classic confrontation uh, and that way of posing the problem. Um, and while I think it, 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 it sheds light on the problems that we face, I've always been unhappy with this uh, kind of stark polarization of reform or revolution. And it, it seems to me that there's there there've been other more creative ways of thinking through this problem that have tried to without without sort of um without seeking to uh to say there's there's no distinction between reform and revolution without saying that the, that, that this polarity is completely rubbish and we should just transcend it there've been really creative attempts to think about a way of navigating a path from reform uh, and that kind of classic electoral strategy uh, of social democratic social parties to something like revolutionary rupture. So it's a, a kind of a kind of wise reformism that's aware of the structural limits to reform within capitalism. You know, it's the idea that you can't you you can't kind of um, you can't um, take away capitalist power. You can't um, you, you know you can't nationalize uh, uh, capitalist uh, uh, companies without them noticing it. No matter, no matter how right. gradually you do it, you know they're, they're going to they're going to realize and they're going to fight back and they've got to, exactly. <laughs> so, um, but there have been this kind of really creative thought in the past, uh, often associated with I mean, we guess we could call it broadly left Euro communism. So, I mean, I think the phenomenon of Euro communism itself is really interesting. Uh, the way that those the communist parties in Italy, particularly also France and Spain, try to rethink strategy. Um, and, and to make it relevant to conditions in, you know, kind of liberal democracy. Often that sort of debate was done within the wider parameters of Stalinist thinking. So, you know, what was going on often with the leaders like, um, like sort of the Arti, for example, in the PCI uh, mm -hmm. and Berlinger. It's not actually it's not in Berlinger I like, but um, they, what they were trying to do was to try to, to try to reframe. The PCI in this case as a sort of respectable left flank of social democracy to kind of situate themselves as 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 possible coalition partners in a kind of leftist government, um, and I think they they were sliding into a kind of classic reformism while maintaining a kind of rhetorical Marxism. 
But within those groups, there were much more interesting thinkers like Pulhamsas and like Ngrao and other people. Uh, Gauls, he wasn't a Eurocommunist, but he was in that kind of milieu. And they were trying to think through the way in which you can combine electoral struggle, the way in which you can combine struggles for reform with trying to build a sort of uh, a counterpart to capital that would, would, would be capable of conducting a revolutionary rupture, but one which wouldn't just kind of drop out of the sky. You know, there's a kind of semi-millenarian thinking, I think, yeah. in, in modern Trotskyism, where you just got no idea. There's no, there's no concrete account of how day-to-day struggles lead to a situation of dual power. You know, this in, in their in their kind of sketch of revolution, it's always really rather mysterious. <laughs> how, it's quite messianic. These, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think to uh, was it um, Colin Barker's revolutionary rehearsals is, is mm. sort of the I think the the. An example of that par excellence, it's, it's an analysis of these various sort of upturns and struggle that sort of have this kind of almost kind of a messianic uh, kind of uh, appeal. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so you, you go to Eurocommunism. Let's talk a little bit of maybe – I mean you've, you've already sort of given a, a nice context of that in terms of what the leadership was. Uh, but, but, but maybe spell that out for my audience. I mean I think the, the millennials in, in the house, uh, which comprise I think a large uh, portion of my audience, uh, millennials broadly conceived, probably know very little about Eurocommunism. Uh, most of them probably know far more about the Russian Revolution, for God's mm. sakes, than they know about uh, Eurocommunism, which was something that happened – well within the lifetime of, of, of their parents and, and yeah. some of them, you know, themselves. Yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a sort of blip in the radar screen of, of sort of broader socialist history because at least I would, I would wager and I'd like to get your take on this that, that the moment that our theoretical capacities emerged to, to consider something like a Euro-communist alternative, mm. uh, the global economy had a way of uh, foreclosing those possibilities. In, in the sphere yeah. of global capitalism and political economy. So I don't know if you agree with that take or not, but maybe kind of spell that out and you can do that far better than I can. You have much more of that under your belt, I'm sure. Well, I hope so. I don't know. We'll see. But um, yeah, uh, it's it's kind of, um, it's almost like a lost history now. It's uh, It was, I mean, Eurocommunism was a kind of mass movement, if you like. It was the kind of, um, the official line of, particularly the PCI, the, the, uh, the Italian Communist Party, um, which was trying to think through uh, revolutionary strategy uh, in, 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 I mean, they kind of drew on the heritage of Gramsci, you know, uh, and had that, that kind of um, grounding in the idea that there was something different uh, in the West than there was in, in the East, you know, that the kind of classic um, October 1917 insurrectionary strategy uh, just, just wasn't, it just wasn't applicable in the conditions of uh, post-Second World War Italy. Um, and there was some element of bad faith in this because you've got people like uh, Togliatti, a big Stalinist, you know, who, who are acting on Moscow's orders, it seems. Uh, what Moscow wants, of course, is um, it doesn't want to rock the boat after the Second World War. It wants, to, it wants to build alliances with the Western capitalist democracies. Uh, and the line becomes that... Um, Communist parties in uh, each different country should develop their own national roads to socialism, which kind of replicates Stalinism, you know, the kind of um, socialism in one country idea, uh, but also is about diluting um, anything about communist parties in Italy, in France, in Spain that looks 
like it would scare off the bourgeoisie. You know, they were essentially trying to build what the, what the Italians called an anti-monopoly front, a uh, kind of extension of the popular front, you know, where they'd kind of attract um, progressive, the progressive bourgeoisie and um, manufacturing capital, um, small businesses in an alliance against finance capital and against the uh, the monopolies, which they said was the you know the driving force of capitalism. Right, and now that was just and just for clarification. Now that was not only just kind of a, a strategic kind of um, you know impulse, but it was a direct, if I'm not mistaken, it was a direct response and rebuttal to the more centralized, uh, one size fits all uh, communist strategy that prevailed in a lot of the communist parties that were more uh, directed yeah. uh, from say moscow or, or otherwise is that is that right i mean saying the pcf in france and, and, and otherwise well there's also, there's also a parallel development where these parties increasingly um assert their independence from moscow and they become increasingly critical in slightly mealy mouthed ways but they become critical of um you know the Stalinist um, suppression of um, of rights uh, and the various abuses that happen, uh, and they 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 come out um, with various statements saying they believe in um, party pluralism, they believe in the defence of uh, and kind of and extension of um, the kind of civil and political rights of, of, of evolved in Western capitalist democracy. So they're trying to trying to distance themselves from that. Um, Eastern Bloc model, a kind of monolithic model of, of communism, you know, the one-party state. Um, and so what begins as a, a kind of a, 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 a tactical manoeuvre um, within the parameters of what Russia's or the Soviet Union's foreign policy is, you know, not, not, not trying to upset the cart and not trying to um, try not to alienate the capitalist powers, it kind of it spills over. And it becomes a sort of genuine attempt to think through how can we build a really democratic socialism, democratic communism in the West? Right. Um, how do we draw on the, the great kind of cultural democratic achievements in places like, you know, Italy, France um, and, and other places? And I think there's, um, as time goes on, it's, it's more and more genuine about trying to create uh, socialism with a, with a human face. And that's where the sort of left wing, if you like, of the Euro-Communist parties come in um, who, who um, seek to do something different than simply chart a course back to respectable social democracy. They want to retain a sort of ruptural edge to the politics. They want to retain a definitely anti-capitalist edge to those parties' politics mm -hmm. and resist the drift into reformism, in inverted commas. So... It's a really interesting period. I mean, it doesn't last that long. It's sort of, it's kind of high point is the 1970s. And you're right, there's a clear connection with the, the, the crisis that hits at that point. Um, and yeah, and it kind of disappears. But of course, with the collapse of the Soviet Union, these, these ideas, the parties that uh, most of all, some of them anyway, particularly the PCI, that were coming up with these really creative ideas, uh, they just, disband themselves they disappear and these ideas um tend to get lost in history now but uh, i think there's a lot of um useful stuff a lot of resources to uh, to excavate if you like from the period i mean there's a tremendous parallel now that that occurs to me here i mean you, you don't you don't talk explicitly about euro communism in your essay in your article 
which is why I wanted to bring it out. Folks can and absolutely must read this article. Just, just, just read it, people. It's, uh, it's, it's really good. I'm not just flattering my guest. If I had the time and the wherewithal and the abilities, uh, you know, I myself, uh, this is very similar to the kind of strategic orientation, the historical kind of synthesis that I would have come up with. And, and most of the people I think who I, I consider, you know, worthwhile political thinkers would have come up with. So it's great to see that there are people who are seeing the same dynamics. And of course, you use your talents uh, to put that to paper. Pe- people have to read this thing. I mean, this is a manifesto for the Dead Pundit Society, as far as I'm concerned. Um, I mean, really, I mean, it's, I mean, but there's something that's, it, it's, it's, it's vindicating as well. I mean, it's validating, I think, that for my audience and for myself, and perhaps even for you, that, that, that these are, these are problems that a lot of people are noticing in their own particular unique contexts that yeah, have a yeah. general, a generalizability uh, to them in a sense that we can all sort of adopt. So, but what you do talk about in your piece more explicitly is Syriza. And it seems to me that there's a similarity there between the experience of Syriza in Greece and Eurocommunism. And so far as uh, each are oftentimes held up as um, <laughs> as cautionary tales as to what happens when you stray too far from so-called revolutionary principles yeah, or, the, or the Leninist revolutionary strategy of, of dual power, the dictatorship of the proletariat, um, and they are held up as uh, you know, uh, failures of so-called reformism. Uh, so let's get, let's, let's get to the Syria case. Uh, as, as I mentioned off air, I'm going to have an episode on Syriza. I'm going to bring on someone who studies this explicitly. Uh, at some point, there are a lot of fantastic people out there. This won't be that episode, but we will have to talk about Syriza, obviously, to get to some of these arguments. So we'll have to cover it kind of, uh, mm. uh, briefly, but talk to me a little bit about Syriza and how it illustrates some of your concerns. Well, um, I think there's, um, there's a definite tendency now for what we might call, I mean, this, this, I'm using the term perhaps slightly crudely, but, you know, the Leninist um, uh, critique, which kind of feels itself uh, vindicated by the, the degeneration of Syriza in, in power and, you know, the kind of reinforces the narrative that the kind of original sin of um, reformism is uh, the attempt to utilize the structures of the capitalist state. You know, once once you enter it and you, and you try to do anything beyond more than making propaganda from within those structures to address the sort of masses outside, then you become incorporated by uh, by that by those institutions and by capitalism. Um, and um, what happened to Syriza is just one more example of this this remorseless logic working itself out. You know, they were kind of doomed from the start, but in the moment that Syriza announced its intentions for former government of the left. Um, um, And certainly when it actually won the election, then it was doomed to follow this path into, you know, some disappointment and then end up um, simply implementing austerity in a slightly slightly nicer way than, um, you know, new democracy had been doing it before. But that seems to me, I'm I'm just not happy with that kind of story. It's, It's just too... I don't think there was anything inevitable about the trajectory of Syriza in power. Um, what I think is that the likelihood of failure was always very high. I think the likelihood of um, not being able to, you know, surpass or overthrow capitalism is always very high. Whatever strategy you take, you know, because right. face it, 
who has ever done it? Perhaps that's perhaps one or two instances in history, and even then they weren't that successful in the end. You know, they weren't happy stories. I have to cite here uh, Nathan Robinson, who is uh, he's a Brit. He's over here in the U.S. He started a magazine called Current Affairs, and I was listening to him. He's a friend of the show, and I was listening to another podcast, and they asked him, and they said. Well, you know, he's talking about the left and, and, and prospects. And they said, well, you know, uh, you know, what do you think of the left's sort of prospects here? And he said, well, you know, our prospects are always dim. We represent those in society who don't have power as 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 it's defined in capitalism. Now we have a certain other kinds of power, right? Yeah. But it's not a power that's organized by capital. Uh, it's sort of disorganized by capital. So, yeah, just, m- 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 uh, you know. Echoing Nathan's uh, sort of claim there, it's like, well, hell yeah, of course it's difficult. Uh, it's it's uh, we're we're the ones representing those who don't have the power. So I, I hear you there. That that you, you write uh, elsewhere here that um, you know th- there are folks who sort of sat back and abstained in the KKE and uh, Antarsia uh, to Marxist, communist, uh, vaguely uh, anarchist in some senses um, formations who refused to take part in uh, the series electoral coalition and they sort of sat back and waiting for it to fail so they could say, I told you so. Exactly. And I think that um, they, they never had a, there was never a clear concrete alternative. So groups like Antasia, I mean, brilliant, as far as I know, brilliant activists in Greece, you know, yeah. uh, really, really hard fighters. Um, and nothing, you know, can really admire people who were, who were campaigning uh, for a socialist alternative there. But in terms of their strategy, um, I just don't think they had one. I don't think they had one other than to say that Syriza was going to fail because reformism always fails. But um, they hadn't. There was there was no clear sense of how they could actually address the question of power. And I think what what Syriza did, uh, and which was so impressive, is that they unflinchingly addressed the question of power. You know, they 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 sort of said. Uh, we need to take power. We need to take government power. Um, they at least started to, to try to work out um, how to how to build a movement um, that would take power and then see what it could do from then on. Um, because the alternative was just to kind of give up from the start. You know, the alternative was a kind of uh, faux radicalism where you say, well, we can't take power because we'll be incorporated. But that if you don't, if you don't even start to address the question of government power, taking political power, you're you'll just kind of marginalise yourself. You know, you're 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 doomed to fail uh, yourself too. Um, so, I think that the, the key moment there was when it was Cyprus who, uh, who who came up with that slogan for a government of the left and kind of grasped the necessity. That's right. Uh, to, to, of taking power, and that's—I mean—the the key thing there was it, it actually galvanised uh, the movement. You know, this was the moment when Syriza really started to look like a government in waiting, and a power, a power uh, against austerity in waiting. And uh, I think what they grasped was something that should be really obvious, but often isn't on the left, which is that it's really, really hard to see, really hard to see how any real mass radicalization, any any kind of mobilization of working class people behind left-wing ideas, how that won't at first at least take an electoral expression, how that won't lead to involve the kind of electoral rise of a party which um, has its eyes on, um, on power. 
as its eyes on, on taking um, forming a government within the structure of the capitalist state. And I think that we just have to we have to accept that. We have to realize that that's the that's the pattern historically when there are upsurges of uh, of left wing ideas in established capitalist democracies. Time after time after time, they're expressed in the form of the rise of, um, of of an electoral party, and so I think we need to work with that dynamic and and, and not sort of polemicise about it or step aside from it, but try to find a way in which we can draw out the kind of implicit radicalism at work. You know how how can we how can we push these movements beyond? the usual social democratic reformism that leads to disappointment? Uh, how can we come up with a, a way of struggling uh, that, that takes on a kind of dynamic logic um, that, that pushes people beyond those limits, that starts to probe the limits of capitalism and starts to find ways through experimentation, through building counterpower outside the state as much as within it, but ways of actually uh, taking that movement forward. Right, right. It's worth noting uh, August Nimtz is a Marxist uh, scholar here in the United, in the United States. Um, he is, uh, although I, I have some differences with August's kind of take on this, but it's worth noting. I mean, even though there are differences here, he's written extensively on Marx and Engels' own take about the importance of electoral politics and electoral mm-hmm. strategy. And they, they famously wrote that, uh, you know, uh, workers' uh, parties should engage in elections uh, to sort of take the temperature of the class struggle in that particular national, you know, formation. And uh, August Nemtz has also recently released a book uh, called Lenin's Electoral Strategy. And Lenin had a, a similar uh, formulation, of course, uh, prior to the October Revolution. Um, so, you know, it's, it's to say that there, th- this isn't a, a, um, a revisionist, necessarily a revisionist Marxist approach, right? This no, goes back right. to the, 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 the beginning. Not to say that that in and of itself, right? That, well, Marx said so, so it had to be true. Like, we don't want to pull that move. We don't want to make that move either. But but it's not a revisionist, yeah, yeah, not a revisionist yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. argument in any, any stretch. No, there are those resources, even within kind of classical Leninism and Bolshevik thought. I mean, another really interesting um development uh was the um the theory of the united front and the workers government which uh the Comintern had as its policy i think it's um the fourth congress in 1922 um what had happened there was and this this goes against the usual narrative from the kind of modern day leninist position you know which is that lenin and trotsky said you need to maintain absolute independence from the capitalist state you shouldn't seek to work within those institutions and what the Comintern was saying in 1922, you know, Lenin's still alive, Trotsky's still very much active, and so on and so on, um, was that uh, after the kind of ebbing of the revolutionary wave in, in Europe after in, in the early 1920s, they looked around and realised there, there were no Soviets, you know, in Germany, in France, in Britain, and so on. Um, and what had happened was the kind of renewed hegemony of, of reformism. Um, and their their new tactic was to sort of you know in contradistinction to the kind of ultra left turn, um, where you know sort of uh, social democrats were denounced as as this and that, was to say that we need to work uh, with w- working class as they are, and we need to take up immediate demands. And this is where the idea of transitional demands come from. You know that we take up the immediate needs and interests of the working class and we press them forward. And a logical extension of this is if you want to form, if you want to create reforms to improve the immediate conditions of the working class, 
and there's no imminent prospect of a sort of revolutionary overthrow in a situation of dual power, what do you need? Well, you need some kind of political instrument to carry these reforms out. So you need a government. You need a, what they call a workers' government. And so there's diff- there was different iterations of what the workers' government meant, and it was a bit vague. But something just like um, uh, Karl Radek uh, and Clara Zetkin were quite clear that the KPD uh, should aim to take um, power electorally or be part of a coalition to introduce transitional reforms. Um, and their, their their idea was that as long as this was aimed at radicalising a mass movement outside the state and empowering workers, you know, beyond um, kind of elitist machinations within the state structure itself, that this was a perfectly legitimate, in fact, the only uh, feasible way of moving towards a revolutionary rupture. In fact, I think Karl Radek, you know, the Bolsheviks said that this was, in, in the conditions of the time, this was the only feasible way of moving towards what he called the dictatorship of the proletariat. You know, communist parties had to get elected to power <laughs> uh, and implement reforms through the capitalist state. So there are these sort of lost histories that often people don't know about or forget about. Um, and Leninism isn't quite often, you know, what people say it was. It's much more, it's much more, it's much more interesting. <laughs> I think that it's got right, for those, interest. I mean, just, just to lay down some, you know, for those who, who don't uh, have the history under their belt of the kind of a common turn in the margin, the more marginal characters, a, a Carl Raddick, Ooh. uh, you know, I mean, let's, let's just say he was not, um, Carl Raddick was not an, an unorthodox member of the common turn. <laughs> Victor Serge, uh, famous, uh, you know, infamous uh, uh, guy who, who wrote quite a bit uh, on uh, that experience, uh, who was uh, more of a kind of an anarchist, but very sympathetic to the Bolsheviks in the common turn, uh, you know, sort of portrayed Raddick as a as a as a bureaucrat and an apparatchik. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so now whether whether or not that's true or fair, I mean, that's just to say that we what you're pointing to there is not uh, a kind of a, you know, alternative to the history of, you know, the Bolsheviks and in, in the common turn and yeah. the, the communist international. It's something that runs very it's directly through uh, the course. If we seem to be a little uncharitable to Leninists or Leninism or that legacy, um, suffice it to say that there, there is a, there is a certain kind of alternative yeah. narrative. You yourself might not agree with what we say next about non-reformist reforms and Corbyn and all the rest of it, but uh, yeah, there's uh, there's Leninism was never as monolithic as the kind of latter day epigonies of Lenin seem to you know seem to assume. It was much more creative, and you know this was the the idea of the workers' government um, implementing transitional demands, transitional reforms. This was official policy for the for the Comintern, approved by Moscow uh, in the early 1920s, and it only came to a halt because soon after this, you know, Lenin dies and Stalin takes over, and this whole stuff is just lost. Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. This is crucial stuff. And like I said, I love this because this isn't stuff that you're able to get into directly in your piece uh, with the kind of uh, narrative. I mean, it, so I mean, this is good because I'm oftentimes accused by folks who are more in line with the uh, quote-unquote Leninist uh, political strategy, dual power, dictatorship of the proletariat and all of that. There are some formations here in the United States that adhere much more closely to that. Socialist alternative is one of them that has a much more nuanced, I think, electoral strategy, but they are nonetheless advocates ultimately of dual power. 
the ISO, of course, is an affiliate uh, or a, a, a long once was an affiliate of the British SWP, who has a very similar yeah. kind of Trotskyist Leninist kind of uh, orientation. So, so we're not being totally unfair here. Uh, we're we're resuscitating, revivifying a certain kind of uh, lost history. Let's go into the specifics of the article piece by piece sure. here. You write in the very beginning. We're going to backtrack here. We covered a lot of really fantastic context, and now we're going to lay out the strategic debate and your particular intervention is, is the, the kind of strategy that you'd like to put forward. Uh, you write here, starting with Leninism, you write here, the trouble with Leninist critique, however, is that no matter how opposite its diagnosis of the constraints imposed by series as parliamentary statism, it remained unable to offer a credible concrete alternative and the political groups that cleaved to the strategic orientation, such as in Tarsia, were largely bypassed, winning nothing remotely close to the degree of support that series uh, was able to gather. And so uh, you talked a little bit about the paralysis that is sort of um, implicit in the Leninist position of refusing to engage in electoral or state uh, yeah. uh, policies. Yeah. So there's, there's um, what I took from, there's a really, really great book. It's very long. It's really great. Uh, by a guy called Donald Sassoon, who wrote uh, 100 Years of Socialism. Massive book. But one of the, in fact, it's almost like an aside in there, but I, it really struck me. One of the things he said was that um, the socialist left has never been able to bridge the gap between what he calls um, the end state, you know, kind of vision of what we want, socialism, and the immediate sort of demands of the present. And mm. socialists tend to get caught at either ends of this pole. And I thought about this, uh, they get stuck there. You know, you get the people who kind of get immersed in the immediate demands and who get incorporated into the system because they, you know, they're, 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 they're implementing reforms and they find themselves drawn into this uh, remorseless logic of um, once, once you take over, uh, uh, you know, once you're, once you're in government, you become responsible for a, for a capitalist economy and you start to manage that economy on its own terms. Because if you don't, you know, what do you get? Economic crisis, you get capital flight, and you get all the kind of problems that, that assail uh, leftist parties in power. On the other hand, you've got the revolutionaries who go in for a kind of um, slightly caricature here, but kind of basically a kind of purist line who say, well, we're not going to dirty our hands with, uh, you know, trying to implement reforms via the state. What we're going to do is we're going to hold out for um, the, uh, the insurrection. And that'll solve all our problems, right? And we can avoid the kind of the, the kind of grubby compromises that the reformists have to do. And yet, what you end up with there is a sort of, in the end of the day, a kind of, uh, like you said, a messianism. You know, you're waiting for this kind of eruption from from nowhere, but which never quite emerges. And so you get this sort of a kind of bad faith on both ends of these poles. You've got the reformists who are forever um, putting off. The day at which they they challenge capitalism, you know, so socialism is relegated to a, a sort of infinitely, you know, to a horizon that never comes. Um, the, the ultimate goal is kicked into the long grass. And on the other hand, you have the the, the kind of crudely the Leninist reformists, uh, sorry, a revolutionary left, who um, are always also waiting for something that never comes to. You know, there's always already the revolution is kind of just around the corner, but it's never quite here. And they can never quite make, you know, what's what's the connection between 
the day-to-day struggles, paper sales, you know, building marshes, making speeches. What, how, how do you move yeah. from that to a situation of dual power and insurrection? There's a kind of right. that very big question is always glossed over. <laughs> you, oh, you, sell more, you sell more papers. That's what you I guess so. You, you and I say this with love. As, as, yeah. as listeners will know, I mean, I, I, I was there. I, I used to sell papers. I hawked them and, and I talked to people and you just, you, I don't know, you sell more passionately. I tried that. Um, it didn't get us anywhere, but anyway, I mean, Hey, somebody's got to do it. Right? Well, sure. I, you know, I don't want to knock. I don't want to knock. No, no, I, think, I think, here. I think revolutionary parties perform yeah. a really, really useful job. I mean, you know, these people are often yeah. the workhorses of the movement are the ones who build the marches are the ones who, you know, so That's I don't mean to dismiss these groups, but I think strategically, I don't think they really have much sense concretely of how they envisage a revolution happening today. You know, how it happened. It's, it's never. Right. Started. I think one thing that your, your piece points to here is, is, um, and of course, you rightly mentioned that you you necessarily caricature each of these positions, right? Because reform yeah. versus revolution is in itself an abstraction. It's a caricature yeah. of of each uh, in order to set it against one another. Uh, but so you know what what happens more often? So is 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 that what happens is that these revolutionary you know quasi Leninist uh, grouplets end up. Um, actually engaged in what are reformist struggles yeah, themselves. Yeah, absolutely. This is something that um, Richard Seymour, who you may, have, uh, you may, you may not know of, um, he runs a blog called Leninology, really, really good. Uh, and he argues... I would wager most of my audience would know who he is. Over here, he's okay. a pretty, pretty good name recognition in the States. Oh, excellent. Yeah, he's an indispensable read. And one of the things he, he argued was uh, precisely this, and he actually really annoyed a lot of people when he said this, which is that that revolutionary or uh, socialists, um, there's not really that much to distinguish them in terms of their kind of day-to-day practice from reformists. They're not really doing anything very different. Uh, for all intents and purposes, his phrase was, we're all reformists now, you know, um, right. because, uh, the, 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 and it's almost like, and this is something that, that um Panagiotis Sotiris has argued uh, too, a sort of Greek um, sort of critic of Syriza, but one of the things he says, which I think is, is quite right, is that often in practice, um, revolution, the, the sort of revolutionary status of revolutionary groups is fundamentally, it's a rhetorical gesture. You know, it's, it's a kind of, uh, it's, a, it's a bit of branding. So it's, it's how what differentiates us from those reformists. But in practice, in, in terms of the way they operate, there's not a great deal of difference. They're campaigning for the same sorts of things in the same sorts of movements as reformists. Um, and so I have a suspicion that um, revolutionaries are often rhetorically revolutionaries. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, not, right, really a, it's not really a concrete right. thing about them. Well, this is what we call here uh, in, in the United States a virtue signaling. Mm. And that, that doesn't have a very kind uh, – that's not a very charitable way of uh, de- ex- de- describing someone. I think Panagiotis uh, Sotiris here has it better as you write and as you mentioned and as you write in your piece. Um, in fact, really, this is about identity, right? He says, indeed, uh, Panagiotis further suggests that this abstract invocation of revolutionary intent tends to function more – in terms of identity rather than practice, yeah. uh, you know, and the, the concrete substance of revolutionary strategy remains at best only vaguely defined. Now, that's not to say that these people don't believe it. I mean, I, I, I know for a fact they believe it. I mean, they're very, very passionate. Yeah. Some of the most 
some of the most uh, passionate people about uh, you know social and radical political and economic change out there. That I think it's it's a, it's tragic, however, I, at least in my estimation and yours, that their strategic orientation would some would would in a sense prevent uh, their radical and passionate intentions from from becoming a reality. And that's precisely you right because they don't have the right uh, strategic field of vision, which as listeners of my show will know is provided by neo-Marxian state theory. In a sense, as, as you, you sort of uh, sum up throughout the rest of your piece, these theoretical um, orientations, these theoretical frameworks uh, are, are, are literally our eyes. It's, it's, it's our eyes, it's our, the, our way of seeing the world and the various contradictory and dialectical dynamics in the world so that we know how to act in a strategic way. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the first, the first one that you lay out here is that my audience should be fairly familiar with this is um, Palancis, the way that he conceptualizes the state as a condensation of class struggle and um, a, a field, a terrain on which uh, classes and class fractions uh, sort of do their work. So, so spell that out for us. Um, that's something I said, you know, folks who listen to my state theory series will have uh, something uh, you will know quite a bit about that. If you haven't listened to the state theory series, go back and check it out after this episode. It'll be very relevant. What does Palancis mean to you? Well, I think Palancis's theory, his later theory of the state, as spelled out particularly in State Power Socialism, his last book before he died, uh, 1978, I think it was published. But that's, that right. for me is when he he comes out with an approach to capitalist state power, which I think um, remains unsurpassed. You know, it's it's the kind of still the cutting edge for me um, Marxist uh, theory of the state. Um, and he wants to well, he, he argues basically that we should think of the state in terms analogous to Marx's um, conceptualization of capital. You know, so it's, it's not a thing. It's a social relation. Um, the, the state is not a thing. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a, it's not a kind of concrete thing, although it has a, a what he calls an institutional materiality, it has concrete reality. Um, it has institutional form, but it's not a monolithic block. It's, um, it's, 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 it's also a field of, uh, of, uh, of, of power where various social forces kind of constantly modify it and, uh, and the balance of class forces is, is reflected and sort of refracted via the state, which produces a really, really sophisticated um, account of, of the state uh, and gets beyond um, the sort of crude, for me, the crude formulations of, of the state, which I think tend to be rooted in Lenin's state and revolution, where mm-hmm. Lenin tends to assert that once you identify the core function of the capitalist state, which is to, you know, to reproduce capitalist power, that's pretty much all you need to know about the state. Um, and there's nothing more to it than that. You know, the, the only thing that remains to do is to surround it and smash it and replace it with a worker's state, you know, because it's essentially absolutely bourgeois. It's just uh, simply draws from that famous uh, saying from Engels that the state is um, you know, an organ for the uh, suppression of one class, repression of one class by another, and clearly that's there's there's a, that's true. There's a, a truth there, but it's not it's not the entire picture. And I think that Palantir gets beyond that in an interesting way. And the way he gets beyond it opens up a really 
interesting, sophisticated um, set of possibilities about how to orient socialist strategy in advanced capitalist democracies, you know. And uh, that's what he develops in that kind of famous or even infamous last chapter of state power socialism where he starts to set out this vision of um, a kind of articulated process of of, of um, getting people elected within the state to sort of, um, you know, to build uh, centres of power within state institutions, not, not just at national levels, but at local levels and local government and municipal forms and so on, um, to modify the, the institutional materiality of the state and sort of disrupt and isolate bourgeois power centres and things like this. Right. So you, you mentioned in your piece, just to backtrack here, just so we don't gloss over this, because I really, I really appreciated this because it, it, it speaks to the necessity of the kind of uh, field of struggle that Poulancis lays out. Uh, one of the ways that folks often sidestep this debate altogether is just to point to, as you'd mentioned, smashing the state. You have to smash the state yeah. uh, with a dual power framework, where whereas the workers have their own sort of uh, governmental apparatus and power center outside of the capitalist state, and then you would in, you would institute at what what's often called by Marx and others a dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, you you point here. You write uh, as Nikos Palantzis points out, these phrases were for Marx and Engels at most signposts which indicate problems, yeah. uh, those being you know, the class nature of the state, the necessity of a stage of transition towards the process of the state's withering. Um, but he writes, but these signposts have since become transformed in Marxist orth- uh, orthodoxy into apparently definitive answers in themselves to those same problems. And so what were initially set out by Marx and Engels as signposts, as, as certain kind of contradictions that should, that should draw our critical attention, yes, exactly. have become answers in and of themselves, yeah. which are just – which are necessary but – I mean these signposts are necessary but insufficient. And so you seem to be arguing that Polances can give us better answers. Yeah. To these, to these uh, signposts, yes, these does. dilemmas that are pointed to in the classical uh, Marxian. Yeah, tradition. absolutely. So, yeah, it's, it's like, like you say. So, in the orthodoxy, those phrases smashing the state and the dictatorship of the proletariat. Um, it's almost like for um, you know the kind of uh, that kind of orthodox Leninist uh, revolutionary left. These are the answers. You know, the, these the, these things were solved by Marx and Lenin. This is what we've got to do. But of course, they're not answers. They're they're mm. they're like you say, signposts, they're, they're indicating problems that we need to analyze. And we can only analyze them concretely, you know, in, in the conjunction that we're in and, and with the full kind of vision of, of the complexity of the institutional forms and the, you know, uh, organizational forms before us. And I think what, what, what Polanskis tries to do is to think, what, what does it actually mean to smash the state? What, is it, what does it mean to, um, to, 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 to transform political power uh, from something which tends to embed and reproduce bourgeois domination to one which would actually embed and reproduce working class domination with a view towards the kind of eventual abolition of, of class itself. Uh, what would the dictatorship of the proletariat look like? And for me, I think where Polatsis is, is most impressive on strategy is not actually in the last chapter of state power socialism, which I think is... It's good, but it's it's not it's it's got problems. A more interesting discussion actually comes out of his uh, debate with uh, Henri Weber, uh, who I think was a militant in the a French uh, Trotskyist group in the seventies, uh, and it's in the Palantis Reader. 
Uh, I forget what the title of the essay is now, but there's a really, really interesting debate slash discussion between those two where Polonius fills out in a bit more detail what he's what he's talking about. Right. It's one of the final chapters. It's called The State and the Transition to Socialism. Mm. Just as, as an aside, you, you mentioned that was in the, a, a, a collection called The Polancis Reader, Marxism, Law, and the State. It's collected by James Martin. Uh, I, I recommend that to everyone, everyone on my show who reaches out to me and said, I really liked your state theory series. What do I read on Polancis? Uh, that's the first thing I throw out there. And I, I have some specific essays that I recommend. You know, the, the interviews are fantastic. But I would even say even above and beyond state power socialism in a sense because it gives you a broader sort of view of what – so anybody who wants to read up on this, check that out. I did, don't mean to interrupt you, but that's no, a no, no. essential collection. So you're talking about his interview with uh, uh, Henri Weber. Yeah. Um, um, one of the things I – mean, it's a really broad-ranging interview. I think I think actually Palancis runs rings around, around Weber actually. But one of the, the really interesting directions of Polanski's argument is this, this idea that um, he, he wants to retain the idea of rupture. So Polanski is often dismissed as, I think that um, Colin Barker does this, that he just becomes a reformist, right? But he doesn't. Yeah, well, he's a weenie, right? It's easy to paint Polanski as a guy who just doesn't have the stomach yeah. for what it takes yeah, to be right. a real Marxist. That's right, yeah, it's, it's, yeah. yeah. So, but it's just not true. He, he talks about ruptures. He talks about... Uh, revolutionary breaks. He, he, he says that, uh, that what he what he kind of slightly slightly kind of provocatively calls his revolutionary road to democratic socialism, just to kind of wind up to, to wind up on Weber. <laughs> I think it's good. The phrase I'm trying to use. He talks about that yeah. this road can't be a gradualist road. It's not. It's not going to be tranquil. It's got to, on the contrary, incorporate a stage of real breaks. Uh, I'm quoting the climax of which, and there has to be one. It's reached when the relationship of forces on the strategic terrain of the state swings over to the side of the popular masses. But what, what he's trying to get at there, I think, is, uh, and he fills this out a bit, is that he, he simply cannot imagine, and I think he's right, that a, that a kind of revolutionary confrontation would mean a confrontation between the masses outside the state versus the state on block, you know, uh, the, the fortress state versus the in fact, the break is going to pass through the state itself. What it's going to, what's going to happen, Polanski suggests, is that there will be a kind of polarization within the state apparatus themselves too. Uh, and so th- th- we come up with a much more kind of complex and messy conception of what a revolution would look like, um, which I just think is a much more, it's just much more intuitively realistic. I mean, this, this, this seems to me, I can't see anything other than this happening if there was ever to be this kind of this kind of break so it seems like he's saying that the election of uh what we might call a left government is essential to sort of work away within the state while also seeking to work in tandem with the movement outside the states uh in a kind of you know a kind of organic dialectical relationship between the two where the reforms that are a left government, or we might also call it a workers' government, you know, going back to the Fourth uh, Congress of the Commonwealth, seeks to introduce transitional or structural reforms. He doesn't use that term, but that's what he's talking about. In order to empower um, people outside the states, um, in order to kind of radicalise people and to build up a sort of, to build up an institutionalised form of class power um, in things like, you know, workers' councils and various forms of direct democracy. Um, and in so doing, 
not just transfer power from the central state to a more devolved sort of set of institutions. And that's what he's, I think that's what he's, what he's doing now is he's coming up with a much more um, complex uh, idea of what the withering of the state looks like. You know, it's, it's about a kind of decentralization of power. But also in, do, in so doing, you build up a sort of counter power outside of the state that can force those representatives on to hold true to their promises, to, to keep them going, to stop them capitulating, and also to build up a counter power against capital itself that can actually take on, you know, this in some ways the kind of embedded structural power of capital to um, to, to sabotage and subvert uh, left wing reforms. Right, right, right. That's, I mean, that's, that's a very crucial um, strategic orientation. Let's spell out, uh, you know, this kind of, you, so you, you mentioned, just to go back, you mentioned this kind of inside-outside approach. Yeah. So this inside, uh, the electoral state, the capitalist state, electoral, uh, you know, uh, liberal democratic uh, institutions of government and outside, which is to remain, you know, push, keep pressure. I mean, as we talked, we opened the show with this. I think it was very fortuitous and, and somewhat intentional in that you mentioned that the leadership of your union was uh, was it was trying to capitulate now let's just assume for a moment and it's this is probably a fair assumption let's just af- assume for a moment that the leadership of your union is not entirely comprised of opportunistic bastards yeah. <laughs> let's it's, let's it, assume it isn't. for a moment it isn't They're good people. much like alexi cypress yeah. i mean i as yeah. as easy it is i think uh, to hate that guy this these days yeah uh let's let's presume you know let's give them some credit that uh, they never would have pursued this uh strategy for seeking government had it not been for his invocation Absolutely. back in two, uh, 2012 at the party conference yeah um and so you know let's just assume that these people are 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 well-intentioned good faith actors um there are nonetheless going to be some institutional and structural constraints that are placed upon them and so that, so that changes their cal- calculus and you need to have people outside of the leadership structure to maintain the, sh- the uh, you know the pressure on these types of uh, folks that inside outside approach i think is totally indispensable mm-hmm. in the way that you lay it out let's move on uh, we'll we'll come back to this uh, in the b side here later on but let's move on to andre gords and his his contribution let's yeah. cover that for about uh, let's just sort of gloss over that because I want to return okay. to that on the B side sure. here for my patrons and speak more explicitly about what that meant in Greece and what that means for a Corbyn Labor Party government or even say like a Sanders movement here in, in the United States. Well, yeah, Andre Gorse, um, I, as far as I know, originated, um, no, he didn't, that's not true. I was going to say he originated the term structural reforms. It was actually Togliatti, PCI. But, but Andre Gorse gives it... Um, the kind of uh, inflection, the content that um, we associate the concept with now is kind of the, you know, the, the kind of godfather of structural reform. And he's talking about something not a million miles away from uh, Polanzas. He was writing at a really interesting conjuncture uh, just after May 68, um, you know, student uprising, workers uprising in Paris, um, and was trying to think through how the demands of those protesters might actually be taken forward. Um, at, at the time, it didn't, it didn't look unlikely that the Gaulle would fall, the French, um, the French leader, and a, a provisional government of the left would, would, would come to power and would sort of be driven forward by protesters in the street. And he's trying to think through, you know, what, can, what would happen? What would this dialectic between a mass movement and the state, a, a radical kind of government, look like? And so he develops this idea of the, of the structural reform and tries to think through 
what would what would uh what would what he calls a not necessarily reformist reform not the most catchy term so what 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 would be different um with from a what he calls a reformist reform now what, what would a radical reform look like and how would it be how would it be different from the usual social democratic reform um and what he says is that there are basic characteristics of non-reformist um, reforms or, or structural reforms. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that he, he stresses is that um, th- these reforms need to be implemented in a way that disrupt the, the equilibrium of capitalism. So they shouldn't be uh, inserted uh, in a way that um, simply fits in quite nicely with capitalist accumulation. They should aim to disrupt that, that kind of smooth functioning. And in so doing... Uh, necessitate further reforms, you know, because if when you, you start to disrupt the system's equilibrium, you, you need to deal with the effects of that disruption. And it was a way of uh, of, of coming up with a, a, a kind of strategy for a sort of radicalizing dynamic of almost like permanent revolution. You know, you sort of start with a series of uh, immediate demands that come out of people's everyday needs, housing, jobs, whatever, Things that aren't necessarily in themselves revolutionary, but the way in which you you you, you uh, implement them uh, sort of um, necessitates further reforms that, uh, and builds up this uh, this kind of cumulative dynamic, which 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 moves towards more radical conclusions. And he says that the key thing here is to and the kind of um, the, the characteristic of a structural reform is that they must um, they must empower. Uh, the popular movement. So it must be about building workers' power. It's got to be about increasing the democratic capacities of the people. So he, the examples he gives, he's a bit vague about what he means, but the, the few examples he gives are things like um, workers' control, nationalising industry under workers' control, uh, socialising the investment function, so things like you know taking over banks and, and channeling investment uh, into socially useful production, uh, workers' alternative plans for production, so you know, encouraging workers in, uh, in factories and offices and so on to think about how they might control the production process, the work process, uh, and how they might sort of repurpose what they do uh, to, to align it with social needs and also to encourage their own flourishing as people, you know, to get rid of boring jobs, to, to give them some sort of interest in what they do, to utilise their full capacities and skills. Um, and he he also he thinks that this process builds up the kind of democratic capacities of workers in such a way that they get a taste for emancipation uh, and they, and they start demanding more. So they put pressure on their leaders to push this process forward. And the more they do this, the more that they come into conflict with the with business confidence, with the structural power of capital. The more they'll come up with problems like capital flight, with things like disinvestment, like lockouts, and there's no guarantee that things will go in this direction, but he hopes that this could, with the right sort of leadership, um, contribute to that escalating dynamic of radicalization. So, you know, how do we react to capital flight? Well, we, you know, we nationalize the banks or we put in capital controls. What do we do about lockouts? Well, we allow workers to take over their own workplace and run themselves, you know. So it's a way of moving from a situation in which workers are not revolutionary um, in which they do have a kind of social democratic consciousness, and, uh, and through the, this kind of logic of the unfolding of events, 
they kind of educate themselves as a kind of pedagogical process where they learn about the, the, the limits of capitalism. They learn about class power and they start to develop their own consciousness and their own um, sort of, you know, kind of psychological, uh, but also concrete um, capacities to start fighting back. Um, and it fits it fits really nicely with Palancis. And um, this, this is in Gorse's, um, he wrote a book uh, called Strategy for Labour. Uh, and also there's a, a really good essay uh, called Reform and Revolution in a book he wrote called Socialism and Revolution. They're, they're um, late 60s, early 70s. Um, so he was writing at a time a little bit before Poulansas, but um, they were on the same wavelength. And, I, you know, I think this is, again, it's kind of like a, these are resources that have um, slightly been lost a little. And I'd like to see them get resurrected because they kind of speak to us today. You know, they're talking about exactly the same sorts of things that we're, the same problems that we're facing today. Well said. I, mean, I couldn't agree more. We're trying to bring these back to life. Um, you know, you cited quoting you here, and, and, and to sum this up here, you you cite Eric Olin Wright, who mm. was active in his early days, uh, writing around state theory and such in those times. Uh, Wright uh, says, um, the strategy of structural reform pivots uh, around less about questions less about how to make a revolution. Yeah. And rather about how to create the social conditions within which we can know how to make a revolution. Yeah. And so it's about – I mean people talk about the conditions of possibility. That's kind of uh, – Palantis actually has a funny remark. I believe it's with his uh, interview with Weber if I'm not mistaken. He has a funny remark about, yeah, you know, Marxists, uh, whatever. We're all – particularly Althusserians. <laughs> always talking about the conditions of possibility and, you know, he, he basically you know says, you know uh, – fuck that, right? Like we need, to, <laughs> we need to talk more concretely. But this is, really is about – uh, they're creating uh, conscientiously in an eminent sort of organic way, creating the conditions of possibility yeah. for, for the, for the struggle yeah. towards yeah. socialism in a way that, you know, it's an end run around the way that Palancis sort of says these conditions of possibility is always kind of a throwaway uh, in Marxian orthodoxy in some senses. They're trying to bring, bring this to life as a, as a kind of a, a structural um, roadmap. If you will, exactly. I mean, there is no roadmap. That would be too easy, yeah. right? And as you as you say, rightly, we can never really know how these structural reforms will turn out. In a sense, I mean, this is my wager, and I've, I've said this in conversation with uh, some friends of mine. And that, how do you know what is or isn't a non-reformist reform? And we'll get to this here in a moment on the B side more explicitly. But I mean, my wager is that you only sort of know that after the fact. I think you're right. Yeah. And it depends on the it depends on the balance of forces, depends on the conjuncture, you know. Uh, I think as Gore says this explicitly in fact that you, you can't you can't come up with a list of structural reforms that are kind of eternally true. It depends on you know what speaks to people, what are people actually demanding, what uh, can capitalism afford at, the, at this particular time. Um, so it's more um, it's a kind of strategic orientation rather than a list of reforms that are by definition revolutionary there's no such thing right i think uh, the socialist movement worldwide is uh cohering around a very principled set of demands and and aims uh, that are you know both generalizable across the world uh, the capitalist world as well as specific to their national context mm. for example here in the u.s we have to advocate for a thing called medicare for all because yeah. we don't have a national health service 
Um, and of course, you have a national health service, but you're working to save it. Uh, so I mean, these are you know these are specific <laughs> contexts, and these yeah. are all in, in and of themselves sort yeah. of non-reformist reforms. Yeah. But so what we have is a nice laundry list of aims and demands. I mean, this is important. But what I fear is that this operates all too often just as kind of a, a as, as just that as a laundry list. As to, oh, well, to be a socialist means that you advocate for X, Y, Z, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to saying. Well, we advocate for Medicare for all because we see it as a non-reformist reform. It uh, it it, it uh, enhances workers' power. Yeah. It doesn't uh, tie the worker yeah. uh, to his or her boss for health care, and it opens up the possibility for longer strike action. Exactly. Uh, you know, so it, it it expands and enhances the capacities yeah. of the working class movement. It br- it brings concrete benefits in the here and now to workers. You know, it, it does that. These reforms do actually improve people's lives, but they also open up the possibility for more reforms. They also increase people's confidence. They kind of, you know, they, they might um, empower people in different ways. Uh, and that, that's important. I think people often lose... Um, I think people often lose the, the the sense of how important it is actually because because socialists are in the business after all are in, in trying to make people's lives better. You know, we're not in the business of creating utopia. I think that there's a thing called Andrew Collier I really like uh, who wrote a book called Socialist Reason. He tries to rehabilitate the the idea of scientific socialism. It's got it sounds a bad name, but I don't go with the, the entire argument. But one of his key points is I think it's absolutely right is that. Socialists are not in the business of creating socialism. You know, we're, we're not we're not sort of um, saying what exists is wrong, and, and we're comparing it to some kind of transcendent, you know, kind of um, utopia that we're trying to realize. We're not trying to realize socialism um, because that's utopia. What we're trying to do is we're trying to improve conditions in the here and now. It's just that with a Marxist analysis, um, this tells you that. Uh, there will be certain limits to how far we can go. You know, once you you try to improve workers' lives beyond a certain point, once you try to empower them, once you try to remove the worst forms of exploitation and so on, you'll start to run up against class power. So his idea is that we're we're in the business of um, acting on behalf of the poor, the oppressed, and... Uh, seeking to sort of channel their immediate demands to make their lives better. But we've also got this strategic sense, which is that once we push this beyond a certain point, all hell will break loose. You know, we'll come up against the structural power of capital. And the only uh, option at that point is to either retreat or to go forward. Uh, I think that's a, that's a really useful way of thinking about things. It's a, it's a very kind of materialist way of thinking about things as, a, as opposed to a kind of abstract utopian liberal sense of you know you, you first we, we think about this uh, we design this wonderful utopia that we want to realize um and then we look at how current society doesn't measure up to it we're not doing that we're looking at what's wrong with society at the moment how might it be different uh how do the resources and capacities that we already have mean that we could actually get rid of these problems. There's no reason why people should start to death. There's no reason why people shouldn't have health care. We've got the technology, we've got the know-how. We should push for these uh, these changes, but also be mindful of the way in which uh, these forms of oppression and exploitation are systemic. You know, that you cannot remove these problems without eventually seeking to go beyond the systemic logic that, that produces them. That's I think that's very well said. That's a nice way to wrap it up. I, I say I call that in my uh, American uh, colloquial uh, manner, 
socialism for regular ass people. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> these are, these are, you know, I mean, there's no, you know, socialist politics is, or I was going to say they don't have to be, but they ought not be. I mean, they can't be these esoteric uh, concerns no, of exactly. those who spend too much time reading dusty books in academia. Yeah. They have to be the day to day needs and demands of, of the masses or, or it's nothing. Right. And I think, you know, leading us into the B side here, uh, we're going to be talking more about the, the way that uh, Corbin and momentum uh, and the, the movement that's catalyzed around what I'm calling the Bernie Sanders movement. I mean, of course, it has a lot uh, more of a radical and militant uh, uh, legacy than that in the United States and elsewhere. They're taking up the needs and demands of regular people and they're translating that into an anti-capitalist struggle of a certain kind. But that's not to say that this this uh, road is not uh, pocked uh, with with, uh, you know, uh, I was going to say potholes, but then that's not severe enough. I mean, I think the bridge will is likely to collapse uh, from underneath of your feet mm-hmm. if you're not careful. I mean, the, the, this is a very fraught path and uh, we're going to lay out on the B side some of the ways in which we can look at non-reformist reforms and use the terrain of the capitalist state as a way of seeing, uh, uh, you know, uh, as a way of seeing these dynamics so that we can try to work to develop the capacities to void those pitfalls um, in the present. So any, any parting words for the people on the A side? No, not really. No, I've just really enjoyed this discussion so far. And uh, it's, it's nice that you read my my article. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Everybody, I, look, I, you know, I, people say, you know, Adam, you flatter your guests sometimes. Well, of course I do because I'm the one who uh, I, I select them. Who, who the hell do you think, uh, you know, phones up these people or whatever and, and <laughs> says, hey, come on my show. It's me. It's me, people. Uh, I only bring on the people that I enjoy. And, and I really enjoyed this piece uh, very much. I'm going to post it on the show notes. People should read this. We, we didn't get to all of the 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 nuts and bolts, but you should read it yourself to, to see, see the rest of it. We're going to carry it over to the B side. Uh, this, this discussion is, uh, for all activists, um, not just dusty academics, but, uh, anyone who's engaged in trying to, uh, you know, overthrow, uh, I think, uh, this barbaric system that we're, we're forced to live under, uh, should, should tune in and listen in. So, uh, until then, Ed, thanks so much for joining us on the dead planet society. Thanks, Adam. I enjoyed it. Cheers. That concludes our first interview that we did together. I think that was back in 2017, maybe early 2018. I'm not entirely sure. It's been a few years ago now. What you're about to hear is part two, at least a chunk of part two from the interview that I aired last week. Um, It's all about the democratic road to socialism and, and what that meant to the likes of Nikos Poulansas and some of the most you know, insightful thinkers of our era. This is a little 20 to 30 minute clip from that part two. It, it first originally aired as a B side. So patrons heard this. Um, we're taking it out from behind the paywall because we think it's important. And uh, it contains some, some real vital lessons from the book that Ed was writing. It was a difficult book. It was a book that very few people would have had the courage to write. And so that he was struggling to write it, uh, says nothing about his limitations. It says everything about the just the balls <laughs> of, of that project. The just the audacity in the best way possible of taking on a project that bold, a project that had the uh, potential to rewrite the history of twentieth, certainly twentieth century socialism, and perhaps twenty first century socialism. So. Again, I don't know. Uh, I've been in touch with his family. I don't know if I'm the guy. I'm probably not the guy to do it. Uh, 
but uh, I have the attention span of of a of a small fruit fly. <laughs> There's a reason why I wasn't really suited to academia. I am a, a jack of all trades and a master of none. I'm a I'm a professional dilettante podcaster these days, and I like it here. Uh, diving into a book to try to get a manuscript up to shape for publication is just not something that is in my wheelhouse. But I will try to facilitate that manuscript seeing the light of day in some way, shape, or form, if at all possible, because God damn it, I think it's important. And so you guys are going to enjoy this little discussion on the democratic road to socialism. Again, it's chopped up a little bit, but um, all of the most important insights are very much there. So please enjoy. Joining us on the line is Ed Rooksby. Ed, how are you doing? Oh, uh, yeah, I'm good. I'm good. The question at hand is the democratic road to socialism. In the A side, we broke down the historical reality and the theoretical pitfalls of the so-called dual power strategy, um, how it comes up against all kinds of barriers, uh, economic crisis, political crisis, uh, the crisis of democracy, the notion of this kind of like ruptural strategy versus a kind of more strategic long game and in this episode, we want to use Nikos Polantzas' text, State Power Socialism, in particular the final section, which is called Towards Democratic Socialism, to kind of articulate this inside-outside approach, utilizing uh, structural reforms in the way that Ed and I's uh, first episode sort of articulated some months ago. And uh, we're going to spell that out for you. And so starting off, the Second International gets a really bad rap in the history of Marxism. And for, for some good reasons, for those who, who aren't fully conversant in the history of Marxology and socialist history and, and all the rest of it, the Second International came about in the early 20th century and kind of fell apart in the wake of World War I. The adoption of war credits in Germany and elsewhere represented, in the eyes of many, I would say, a certain kind of capitulation to the forces of imperialism. It's said that the social democratic parties, which were once revolutionary, gave way to a certain kind of national chauvinism, if you will, and they completely reneged on the idea of a proletarian international or international worker solidarity by giving into the demands of World War I. So, Ed, your new book mm. that's uh, forthcoming in, the, in, in, a, in a couple of years uh, really tackles this question of the Second International. And, and, of course, while not being in any sense an apology for their shortcomings, uh, you do try to resuscitate uh, a kernel that can be really useful to us uh, out of that moment. Uh, spell that out for us a little bit. How do you approach that question? Yeah, well, I mean, it's tentative right now. Um, so I'm not sure how much I'm going to make this a central argument, but it's uh, I think there's um, – the roots of so many strategic oppositions and the way that these debates get set up are found in that period, right, of the Second International. And like you say, it's a kind of simple, just-so story that's told about the Second International where, you know, the various reformists are shown up for the cowards and traitors and renegades that they are by the um the capitulation to their own sort of national chauvinism during when the first world war starts and then later that's reinforced by their shocking denunciation of bolshevik repression and by the failure of the german spd to undertake a revolution after 
the First World War and the way in which they're kind of, you know, the SPD leadership are complicit in the suppression of the Spart- Spartacist uprising and the death of Luxembourg and Liebknecht. And it's true that the history of the Second Internet, or well, the way it, the way it sort of fell apart, is not a very um, attractive story. It's not a happy story. But that's not all, all, all there is to it. And for one thing, it appears to me that this narrative about the sort of gradual loss of revolutionary purpose, by particularly by the SPD, the German Social, Social Democratic Party, the biggest putatively Marxist party in Europe at the time, there's a story that's told with the benefit of hindsight, you know, from the perspective of the Bolshevik position in particular, that tells a story about the way in which the SPD got sort of, it got too chummy with its own state, that the, the officials, trade union officials and party officials built a nice sort of little life for themselves within the bureaucracy and they made concessions to national chauvinism and the the kind of rot set in, the, the rot that was to become known as reformism. Yeah, um, and there's obviously a lot to that, but I think what that kind of story leaves out is the, you know, the very real structural reasons for the gradual de-radicalization, if you like, of the SPD. It's not simply a matter of cowardly leaders, you know, or um, uh, sort of wrong ideological decisions by revisionists and things like that there was actually there was a good reason why the spd would become increasingly bound up with the you know sort of german state the german society it it became part of that but the political structures of germany as it won more and more mps to the parliament and they faced a real dilemma and they were the first party really to have to work out, you know, what does it mean for us when we say that we're for the overthrow of capitalism, we say we're for a revolution, but we're winning steadily more and more representation in parliament. We're winning millions and millions of votes, millions, there's millions and millions of members of the SPD. To what extent does it actually really map on to the, to the concrete realities of the political situation and the, the trajectory of development in Germany? To what extent can we really pretend anymore to be, you know, much like in that confrontation between Weber and Palantzis as somehow a force which is encircling a fortress state? Because it's not that's not happening. We're actually in it, right? We're penetrating it. We're right there. It's, so people are trying to sort of theorise what's happening in the thick of it, which is always difficult, isn't it? It's always easier with the benefit of hindsight to work out what was actually happening. But at the time, people were trying to utilise theoretical resources and the kind of legacy of Marx and Engels and so on to to work out what was actually happening and what they should do. And the, the, I guess the famous theoretical innovation, if you like, which was more often presented as an apostasy, was the Bernstein's revisionism, you know, and the beginnings of the sort of rejection of catastrophism, of the idea that the final crisis of capitalism was approaching, and that, and more than that, that actually Bernstein starts to argue that, that capitalism is overcoming its own, uh, own contradictions, and that in fact he, that socialism isn't somehow sort of absolutely different to capitalism it's it's a development you know that we can kind of tease out of contemporary democratization of liberal democratic societies and I, I think bernstein is often i think he's wrong in many ways 
you know, capitalism wasn't overcoming its contradictions. It wasn't, we weren't heading towards, it's the, the similar story that you often hear about, you know, that, that capitalism's overcome its inherent tendencies towards boom and bust, or it hasn't. Capitalism's overcoming its inherent, you know, reliance on exploitation. Um, clearly that's, well, if you're going to remain within a Marxist problematic, you can't accept that. But on the other hand, I think that Bernstein is often dismissed as a sort of caricature you know, he's this um, apostate, he's this, uh, he introduced the virus of revisionism and everything went downhill because of him. And the second worst figure of the Second International in this sort of pantheon of villains, if you like, is Karl Kautsky, yeah, yeah. who's known as the Pope of Marxism in the Second International. One of the things he's accused of is having a very mechanical teleological conception of historical progress so you know the kind of uh, communism is un- is inevitable it's just a matter of time you just need to wait until conditions are right and the proletariat will rise up and there'll be a revolution and we don't really have to do anything about it it's kind of fatalistic and that that's a very real dimension of his thinking and of perhaps of a lot of the second international's theory too but Kowski was much more than that it's much more interesting than that um and One of the interesting things about that crisis of the Second International with the breakout of World War I is that it's not the people who you expect necessarily who are the ones who fall in behind their own national war effort. So Kautsky at first is a little bit vacillating about it, but he eventually comes out against the First World War. He actually opposes the support that the the majority of the SPD gives to, to its own side in the First World War. And Bernstein's against the First World War too, in fact, much more, much more decisively so. Um, so there's no, there's no actual direct correlation between the revisionism of people like Bernstein and the and Kautsky's moving towards a centrist position, which perhaps I'll talk about a bit, a bit later. There's no correlation between that and the falling in behind the national war effort, that national chauvinism. And in fact, Kautsky and Bernstein go on to uh, Kautsky's busy slagging off. Bernstein actually doing the revisionist controversy, but they, they grow closer together. They realise they've actually got quite a lot in common. And they actually together join a break-off group party from the SPD called the USPD, the Independent Socialist Social Democratic Party, which is what later becomes characterised as the birth of centrism. And Kautsky is kind of the theoretician of this. And what essentially he's trying to do is to work out what we might today call a democratic road to socialism, which isn't reformism and which isn't the kind of insurrectionism associated with the Bolsheviks. And Kautsky becomes a massive critic of Bolshevik methods and gets himself a pamphlet devoted entirely to him by Lenin, in which he's called all sorts of names. If you read the proletarian revolution and the renegade Kautsky, it's very colourful. About 50% of this book is just Lenin basically insulting Kautsky as an idiot and a you know as a fool and this and that the substance of the argument it it very much takes second place in the pamphlet yeah it's a Um, it's a diss track it's an extended uh, diss track like you find you know some rapper against another rapper yes absolutely (laughs) yeah yeah the kind of kernel of what Kautsky's trying to say is that there is substance to bourgeois democracy it's not simply a sham. It's not simply a method of uh, befuddling the masses. There is actually uh, something valuable to liberal democracy that we can't just destroy and dismiss. And so he's trying to think through what does it mean to have a democratic road to socialism? 
And for me, Kautsky's a bit too naive, I think, about... He makes a very... A, too, a, a facile conflation between democracy itself and the parliamentary institution, the parliamentary form of democracy. He seems to think that the two go absolutely together. And his critique of Lenin is that one of the major critiques is that he thinks that Soviets, which he assumes that, that Lenin's actually trying to introduce Soviet power, the Soviets are too partial that they exclude, they, they can't create a kind of a sense of universal identity. They're not cross-class institutions, they're only working-class institutions, and as such, you can't win a social consensus by these class forms of democracy, whereas parliamentary democracy for Kautsky is a sort of it's a not necessarily bourgeois form of democracy. It's kind of all-encompassing. And there's something to that, you know, that, that um, we, I'm always very, very suspicious, uh, uh, in fact, rather horrified by though that kind of, you know, ultra-left who dismisses parliamentary democracy or uh, liberal democracy as, you know, totally without merit. It's just, you know, it's just rubbish. It's, there's nothing to it. So Kautsky's not without his faults, but he is a very pioneering thinker and i think what he does is he's in in a sense he condenses the dilemmas of the radical left at the time in a way that that tells us something about the real problems and the real lacunae in marx and and uh, marx and engels's thought and in a way he might be seen as the kind of the father of democratic socialism in in that sense and so i think he's one of those figures who's ripe for rehabilitation to some extent because very few people today would ever come across the name kautsky but those who do almost certainly come across the name kautsky as the renegade kautsky right they come across him via lenin as this kind of bad guy who gets everything wrong who's an idiot uh, and i think that's a shame yeah that's how i was introduced to him as, as a kind of a cautionary tale yeah. a villain a bad guy and you just can't even talk about kautsky in you know respectable socialist Marxist circles, without just sort of uh, joining in the chorus of of denigration, um, I think it's also important to to put him in his historical context. In some senses, he was the first prominent Marxist theoretician who was encountering what we might start to call something that was approaching a modern capitalist state. You know, mm-hmm. he, he was he was ushering in the theories of classical Marxism into the twentieth century, into the modern bureaucratic capitalist state form and there are a lot of arguments we could say if we want to get real pedantic about it a lot of people some people out there might take me to task on calling the uh pre-world war ii german state uh modern because it wasn't quite but in any case it was far more complex than anything that marx saw in his lifetime uh, in terms of uh, being a, a modern parliamentary democracy yeah so um, this is a really great, great introduction because in this essay, which turned out to be a chapter on state power socialism, folks can find the essay. It's in the uh, Polancis Reader for those who have that. But he opens up this, this essay or this chapter in a really interesting way, which is why I love this uh, context that you just gave us, Ed, about Kautsky and the Second International. He says, the question of socialism and democracy, of the democratic road to socialism, is today posed with reference to two historical experiences which in a way serve as examples of the twin limits or dangers to be avoided. The traditional social democratic experience, as illustrated in a number of West European countries, and the Eastern example of what is called, quote, real socialism. 
And so we talked about this, quote, Eastern variant of, quote, real socialism, which is this dual power kind of contra state smashing the state that, you know, that, that uh, allegedly occurred in the Soviet experience and that revolutionary socialists are still trying to sort of wrestle with today. And then on the other hand, he says there's this kind of traditional social democratic experience, which is, is, is not really a proud one. It has a lot of failures. And we know what social democracy means today. It's, it's not anything that any socialist should be really proud of. So what Poulances here is trying to do is kind of articulate a way out of this choice, this false choice, which he calls democratic socialism or the democratic road to socialist. Uh, Ed, what, what do you make of this project? What, what, what do you think? Mm. Uh, where, what are the lineages here? And, and what are the main kind of uh, through lines that he's trying to, uh, to, to spell out here? The context in which, I mean, Philosophy has undergone his own little odyssey, right? So he starts off as a sort of more or less, it seems as a more or less orthodox Leninist in his early work, in terms of his vision of the process of change, socialist change, and comes to doubt it more and more until in his final book, he comes up with this really striking vision of the democratic road to socialism. And it's, it's rooted in his theory of the state. It flows from that. It's not, I don't think it's, it's there, are, there are some tensions there in what he says in this final chapter and what he argues in the main bit of the book about the state. But, you know, you can see the way in which it flows from, from that. So once he's made that move and demonstrated that the state is not a thing, the state is not a fortress to be surrounded, it's a field of struggle, a terrain of struggle, and the, and the class struggle traverses that the institutional materiality of the state, as he calls it. It opens up the possibility of this in, what we've been talking about is this inside-outside strategy, where it becomes legitimate to think about the ways in which you might struggle to modify the strategic terrain of the state through mass struggles, but also through directly entering the state. It's obviously through the form of parliamentary elections, the formation of some sort of left government, which could work in some kind of dialectical way with the movement outside the state and together this comprises a sort of he talked about two articulated processes so there's the transformation of the state on the one hand and the unfurling of uh, he, he talked about the unfurling of direct rank and file democracy sort of outside the state but also augmenting the state and so what you get this this vision of is and it's 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 in Kuwait, it's not necessarily that clear, but the, the broad outlines of it are fairly straightforward, which is that it's about combining struggle outside the state and the creation of new forms of mass democracy, perhaps, you know, factory committees, neighbourhood committees, participatory budgets, that sort of thing where ordinary people get involved in direct decision-making political power. And um, seeking to articulate that with a radically reforming governments using the levers of state power as best it can to change things and to conduct a struggle within the state as much as anything else. And I guess the antecedent, I mean, there are certain parallels here with Kautsky because that's where Kautsky ends up after the First World War, where he increasingly argues for this kind of strategy in in opposition to the Spartakists and later to to the KPD you know, the General Communist Party that, that forms itself after the part of the Third International, then the International. And what he, he talks about is um, a socialist government coming to power within Parliament, but also a parallel process of forms of, he talks about forms of direct democracy 
which will spring up alongside the existing states and will sort of, you know, kind of transform the networks and hierarchies of power in some, again, rather inchoate way. But there's a clear similarity between what Kautsky and Polanski are saying. I think Polanski is probably a bit more sceptical about... Kautsky t- tends to have a rather a vision of the state in which he assumes that state power is neutral. It's an in- you know, the state is an instrument that can be used by the SPD as much as it can be used by conservatives for their various purposes. You know, Polanski's, you know, the, his state theory just doesn't, doesn't bear that sort of view out at all. So he's, he's much more careful about this idea. He's careful to always say that the capitalist state is precisely a capitalist state. And yet, the capitalism, it's not just about capitalists, is it? You know, capitalism is about the relationship between capitalists and the proletariat. So capitalism is, it comprises an antagonistic relationship within itself from the start. You, You can't exist without that. And the same with the state. It comprises class antagonisms within itself. So it can't be the simple instrument or, or, or thing of the bourgeoisie. And so what, what Leninists and, um, I'm trying to, uh, uh, Etienne Balibar wrote a book called The Dictators at the Proletariat about the same time as, uh, slightly before Polanski's State Pan Socialism, where he's trying to re, where he's trying to defend the ideas in the context of the French Communist Party voting to, to, uh, expunge references to the dictators at the proletariat from its, from its program. And Etienne Balabar writes a defence of the necessity of the di- of the historical stage of the dictates of the, prol- of the proletariat. And what, one of the things he, that he argues is that the state state power is always the the political power of a particular class. So therefore, the state in capitalism is necessarily the state of the capitalists, and it's absolutely the state of the capitalists, and it's not at all the state of the of the proletariat. And similarly, the dictatorship of the proletariat is the state of the proletariat, absolutely, and it's not at all the state of the, bourge- of the bourgeoisie, bourgeoisie. And um, Palantis's analysis of the state, I think, just, just shows up the incredible simplisticness of that argument from Balibar. The, you know, the, the idea that the state is somehow the uncomplicated possession of, he talks about it being the possession of the whole of the bourgeois class, you know, the whole of the bourgeoisie, owns and controls the capitalist state and you know just a moment's thought will make you realize that actually that uh, like mark says that the bourgeoisie is a band of warring brothers you know it, it doesn't get on with itself right, <laughs> you right, know of course. it doesn't have a singular set of interests capitalist competition if, if affects uh, intra-class competition as much as anything else of course yeah 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 exactly and um one very interesting thing about about balibar actually is that being the kind of uh, the, the major defender of the notion of the classical Leninist thesis on the states is that recently he, uh, in the past few years, this was pointed out to me a few a few days ago on Twitter, that uh, Balibar actually in, in 2010 admitted that uh, Poulain was absolutely right uh, <laughs> but, uh, and he'd got it wrong. It's in, you know, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, the biggest yeah. defender of the dictatorship of the proletariat now says that this was a big mistake and that Poulain was right. Um, That's interesting. Uh, so so yeah, I saw and, a picture um, of Ballybar playing bocce ball at a conference uh, the other day. So he's he's playing bocce ball. He's mellowed out a little bit in his old age. Yeah, and, uh, that now, was shared by someone. Who's, uh, Raphael, right? He was one of your guests. Raphael Cacciatorian uh, came across. That's the guy. At, yeah, uh, he, the he gave me the uh, that reference there. I'm absolutely, I'm really grateful to him because it's yeah. uh, made me much more confident uh, about this whole argument. Yeah, welcome to the Dead Pundit Society International. 
uh, we are uh, <laughs> defenders of the true, uh, the true uh, ideology. Uh, yeah, the true, yeah. <laughs> the true Marxism. Yeah, the correct line of the Death Pundit Society. That's right. That's right. No deviations will be accepted. So, 